0: hello and welcome to the ink to film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie i'm luke and i'm james and this week we dive into diana wynne jones's 1986 fantasy novel howl's moving castle now let's toss another log to our fire demon Ready for our first fantasy project?
1: Yeah, kind of a shift in genre here. We're going from uh, kind of a lot more adult-centered things, and we're we're kind of going to a, more of a childish book. But I don't know; it's a nice change of pace.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I would classify it as a YA fantasy in the you know in the vein of like a Harry Potter, which it's been uh, compared to a lot, um, even though Harry Potter came out later. Yeah, I mean this this book has got a real charm to it, and um, I've been enjoying reading it. We're we're gonna cover the first half here. Uh, I I read chapters one through ten. That's what you read too, right?
1: Yep, chapters one through ten. And yeah, like you said, it's just it's nice to go into something that's like a genuinely like wholesome experience, rather than having to think about like like ulterior motives of characters and different things that are going (laughs) on. And it's just nice to it's it's nice.
0: It's a palate cleanser, right after the thing. It's what we just did. Yeah, so let's just talk for a second about our experience with uh, Howl's Moving Castle. I, I have seen the movie, but I think it's probably been about 10 years the more I think about it, and I'm realizing I don't remember it super well, although I know I've seen it at least twice. Wow, yeah. Um, I was
1: going to ask you that because coming into it, I, I've seen the film a lot, and I think last time I saw it was about a year ago, and it's a masterpiece in my eyes. It's, it's amazing. Miyazaki is a legend. He's He's incredible, but... I was going to ask you because there's there's things in the movie that are straight from the book. So I was just wondering, going into plot points, what you were going to know, what you weren't going to know.
0: I guess we'll just have to address them as they come. There were certain things I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this part from the, from the movie. And then there was a lot of other stuff that I'm like, is this even in there? And I couldn't remember, honestly. So we can we can talk about that as we go. Um, if, if this is your first time listening to our podcast, this is basically what we do. We We go back to the source material for an adaptation that's either out already or coming out. And we we read it and talk about it in depth, and then we uh, and then we get to the to the film that gets made. So that'll be the final of our of our three episode run. I think we're planning to do with this one, right? Yep. Yeah. So we'll do the first half here, and then the second half of the book uh, next week, and then following that up with the film. Um, before we get into the story proper, I wanted to tell you a little bit about Diana Wynne Jones, uh, the the author. Do you know anything about her?
1: Almost nothing I I don't think I've ever honestly heard of her before this this novel
0: All right, perfect. I mean, I I I don't know a ton. I just did some some real quick research Um, I found out that she was born in 1934 in London and died in 2011 at the age of 76 uh, from lung cancer Um, In her college days, she attended lectures by both J.R.R.L. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis both, you know, really well-known names in fantasy According to her autobiography, she decided she was an atheist as a child, which I thought was a pretty cool detail. I don't know why it was in her Wikipedia page, but there it was.
1: <laughs> that's, I mean, that's an interesting thing right there. Like that shows you the the kind of person that she's gonna that she's gonna grow up to be and the writer. And it's interesting yeah. because deciding that as a child and also, I guess, attending lectures from C.S. Lewis is like, yeah, because I I think he was like really heavily Christian, right? Or he used a lot of Christian allegories or.
0: Yeah, Lewis was very was very Christian, as was Tolkien. Um, I I don't want to talk more about that because I don't feel like I know all the details, but I know they were both, uh, both very Christian. I mean, I I think the atheist thing is also interesting to me because I also basically decided I was an agnostic when I was in probably middle school, so very early on. I guess I'd call myself a child, so I could definitely. That That's really interesting to me, and I, I it made me kind of like her more, but, you know, to each their own. In her career, she uh, is famous—she she got really famous for a book she wrote much later called Tough Guide to Fantasyland. Have you heard of this book? Never, no. Yeah, so this is a book that was actually—is really well respected among other writers I know, especially in the fantasy genre, because it's basically like a really hilarious satire— of all the tropes that exist in like sword and sorcery epics. And I really want to read it. And I had no idea that this was the same author until I did this research because I had heard of that book and I was like, oh, she wrote that book? I was really surprised.
1: I wonder I wonder what tropes she put into Howl's Moving Castle.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd have to read the book to know. Um, it is also said that while it's like kind of a send-up, it's also like a, lo- a loving send-up. So it's not like necessarily saying they're all terrible. Right. Just that they're there. That makes sense. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I really want to check it out now. Uh, yeah, like I said before, Harry Potter is often co- compared to these books um, as maybe these being kind of an inspiration, like her writing being kind of an inspiration for J.K. Rowling. And, you know, we can talk more about it as we go. But there's a feel to this book that reminds me a lot of reading like early Harry Potter novels. It's a lot of kind of wonder and and just kind of wholesome. Right. So Diana Wynne-Jones uh, was known for being really good friends with Neil Gaiman, um, so much so that they even dedicated books to each other, which I think is really just kind of cool whenever I, whenever I hear something like that. And then, yeah, Howl's Moving Castle surged in popularity after Hayao Miyazaki made his 2004 anime, and the 2005 English dub version featuring, like, Christian Bale and everybody came out. And then after the fact, it had, been, it had been lesser known, and then after that came out, it, like, you know, surged in popularity.
1: I saw something about her winning some uh prestigious young young adult fiction award yeah. after the after the film came out so probably due to that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um but yeah, so nothing nothing real uh crazy to talk about here in her biography, but from all accounts she seems like she was a pleasant British lady who had a good career friends with other people in the in the in the world of fantasy fiction and it seemed to be well loved.
1: I mean just from what we've read so far I would definitely read more of her material. I I really enjoy it. Like I said it's very like genuinely wholesome and and like there's no cynicism involved really. Yeah, maybe the characters have a little bit of intrigue to them, a little bit of like darkness, but it's always just a fun ride.
0: Yeah, I mean I it's not normally the kind of thing I read. Um I think that's why I'm I got into Harry Potter later and am not nearly the fan that a lot of people are for the same reason, but I think it is nice every now and then to read something like this. Like I said, it's a palate cleanser almost for the, the types of things you're, you're used to. It can be nice to kind of embrace the more wholesome fairy tale-like fantasy out there that has a real magic to it that I do really enjoy. All right, so chapter one, we meet Sophie Hatter, our protagonist. She is the eldest of three daughters for a Franny Hatter, who runs a hat shop. Which is kind of funny that their last name's Hatter and they run a hat shop, but I, I guess that was a thing in, in medieval times often. Yeah, right. I think I think
1: is Franny the mother or the stepmother? She might be
0: a stepmother. Oh, you're right. Uh, stepmother, stepmother to one or two of them. Right. Maybe the real mother of one of them. Yeah, I don't remember those exact details. But so Martha and Letty are Sophie's sisters. Letty is said to be the most beautiful. Sophie is the most studious and a reader, which I always, you know, (laughs) readers love to read about other readers. So whenever someone is described as like a really studious kind of bookworm kind of character and it's in a book, like that's such an easy way to just appeal to the reader and be like, oh, I like her. She's a reader
1: like me. Yeah. Or like the Stephen King writer thing when he like puts writers in his novels.
0: Yeah, it's probably kind of similar. Although writers a little different because you can get into a lot of meta stuff when you, whenever you have writers in there. But yeah, reader readers a sh- easy shorthand for you can identify with this character. Yeah. Um, so Letty Letty the most beautiful want, really wants to marry a prince, but Martha says she's going to end up rich without marrying anybody, and we get a lot of talk about like. Sisters and how they fit in the order and how their lives are going to play out And it seems like franny has a plan for all of them Well, it's funny because like they talk about so they talk
1: about sophie being the oldest and and they have some sort of The oldest always has bad luck and they're doomed to failure and stuff and being the oldest I was like what I was like, this is news to me
0: (laughs) I'm the middleest, So one of the middleest, I should say in my family So I don't know. I guess that makes me a martha (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of that, uh, Franny has a plan. We hear talk about the Witch of the Waste, who has been threatening the king. Uh, We hear about the wizard Solomon, who went to deal with the witch and I think has disappeared. And we hear talk about a tall castle that has appeared near town, making people think the witch has come out of the swamp. And the castle moves around on its own, blows smoke out of its turrets. And um, then we learn that that belongs to Wizard Hal. And this is the first we also hear of the rumors that how like is said to suck the souls from young girls and at their hearts. <laughs> it's a very British thing.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of that. There's a few times that I was like, "Is that the correct wording?" And I was like, "It's probably just like a color, color thing, uh, like you know, British color." Yeah, Ameri- it's just spelled a little differently, or they say yeah. something a he, little bit differently. He
0: said to eat their hearts. Right. Yeah, which is kind of a scary thought but we that's that's the rumor and sophie is you know a little bit scared of this hal when she hears that um and th- so we learned that mr hatter then dies unexpectedly and the hat shop um is left with considerable debts oh it's fanny not franny i've been yeah. franny Were saying franny are you saying franny i think i was oh i thought i heard fanny well, it's Fanny, and she has a plan um, so the, uh, for the girls to help her offset these debts that the hat shop has incurred, and her plans are basically this. Letty is going to go to a pastry shop and be an apprentice to learn to, like, bake and stuff, and Martha is to go stay with a woman who talks a lot, a witch with a lovely house named uh, Mrs. Fairfax. Sophie, on the other hand, is going to inherit the hat shop when Fanny retires. And for now, she's gonna stay on as Fanny's apprentice. I'll quickly go over what happens next, but basically the three daughters leave to go to their prospective apprenticeships, and uh Sophie stays on and it's gonna work with Fanny. Um I believe this is this is something that's directly in the movie, right? I remember this happening. I think it's it's definitely there so. I can't remember for sure,
1: but I don't know that like there's two sisters in the movie. Uh, there's something the, with the, sisters the hat shop or, thing. The hat shop thing is definitely yeah. And then so she also uh, like gets lonely over time because some time passes, and she like talks to her to her hats as she's like embroidering them or and stitching them, and she kind of like names them and gives them powers. I guess is what I kind of got out of it. Did you did you see any of that? Yeah,
0: she starts do, she starts doing that here, right? Like she's yeah. kind of giving them names and backstories and and compliments and so forth. So we learned that the king has quarreled with his prince brother. His brother is prince, and that the prince left. Then May Day arrives, which is like a big festival or something, and a lot of people are are celebrating outside. And she sees Wizard's Hal's Castle is like shooting off fireworks, like almost in celebration of this of this event. But she's frightened by it. And she seems very timid in this early chapter. Like she's very, like everything scares her and, and um, frightens her. And she's just very reserved. And then uh, there was a line here that I think is an emblematic line of of, of the kind of prose that that uh, Diana Wynne-Jones uses that I thought was really interesting. So she just, this is just a description. She says, crowds of young men swaggered beerily to and fro. And there's like a musicality to that, to those words, that mimics the thing that she's describing. And that's a really good sign of someone who's using like poetic language um, in a really interesting way. Uh, Neil Gaiman does this sort of thing also very well. And so this is something that that reminded me of him and something that I do really like that she does and she continues to do in this novel. So a young man accosts Sophie and wants to buy her a drink. He offers to go with her to see her sister, but she refuses and then and then leaves. And then she arrives at the pastry shop. Now, the man is a very striking. This is the our first time we meet Hal, right? But we don't know it's Hal. Right. Or she doesn't know. We kind of assume it's something important
1: because it kind of is thrown in there with, with flamboyant like garb and stuff.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I didn't quite. Like, it seemed like he was important, but I didn't think it was Hal because I didn't remember from the, from the movie exactly what it looked like or anything. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, in retrospect, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> it, but yeah, so he kind of flirts with her. Um, it's 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 written in very kind ways, but that's essentially what he's doing. Letty then goes into this uh, pastry shop to meet up with her sister and finds that instead of it being Mar- uh, instead of it being Letty it's martha um the but martha looks just like letty so so uh, and we learned that there's been a spell cast yeah it becomes kind of complicated here yeah so i mean this is the intro to this book and it's very kind of domestic um we learned that about some magic in the world but it's um there's not a lot of stakes uh, at least early on here i think it's interesting with the the
1: magic being so commonplace that like if I, if my stepmother told me i was going to inherit a hat shop rather than going to apprentice with a, a witch or a wizard <laughs> yeah. or somebody i would be pretty upset that's,
0: yeah that's a sour deal but uh sophie actually like seems to be fine with it like she yeah. she's she's not really resisting anything at this point and it seems like she's uh, dutiful and she feels like she's doing the family well by staying and working as a you know a hatter at this point
1: it's funny because she's like i think that has something to do with like her being timid Like you're saying, like she just wants to to do right by everybody. And she's like, doesn't want to upset anybody. But then at the same time, she also thinks really ill of herself with the whole eldest eldest person not being, you know, not being successful or they're doomed to fail. And she kind of has this pessimistic outlook while also being timid and reserved.
0: Yeah, I also got a lot of implications that there were it was kind of societal, like that's how all eldest children are. You know what I mean? Like they have like these like preordained roles in their society that to me strikes me as very traditional, old school kind of way of thinking. Which I suppose this is kind of a medieval society, so I suppose it makes sense. So Martha admits that what happened was her and Letty decided they didn't like what they were doing. Letty wants to go learn from the witch, even though she's the most beautiful, she'd rather go learn magic. Whereas Martha would rather come and, and do this pastry shop. So they, they learned about this spell from, from the witch, and they used it to make Martha appear the same as Letty. But we also learned that over time, she's going to slowly start reverting back to her to her other self. But it's not like her other self is like hideous or anything, so it's going to be kind of a subtle transformation. So Martha then says that she feels sorry for Sophie because she's stuck in the hat shop, and she says, "I, you know, I think, I'll, look, now I started writing Franny. Is it Franny or Fanny? Fanny, no R. Okay, so I started writing Franny at this point, so <laughs> I was mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so Fanny, she, Martha says she thinks Fanny is manipulating Sophie. Um, and she says, is she paying you? And Sophie's like, no. And so she says, uh, well, she, she's making you do all the work while she's off, you know, having fun. And just kind of making money off of your labors, and this is kind of a, like a wake up call to Sophie who hadn't really thought this way until then, until now. So then Sophie uh, slips off and goes back, uh, goes back to the to the hat shop, thinks over what Martha said, and then she decides she's going to ask Fanny for a wage. When she does, Fanny says, "Oh yeah, we'll see about that." And Fanny feels like, "Oh okay, you know, you know, I I feel kind of mean for even mentioning it, but it seems like it's going to be all taken care of now." But then sure enough, Fanny never does anything. Like later, she never does anything again. And Sophie is not the kind to keep bringing it up because, like I said, she's very timid at this point. And so she doesn't say anything. But it um, does seem to it
1: bothers her. She thinks about it a lot about how she's. It does bother her. Yeah, starting to to tick away at her at her sanity or something.
0: Yeah, and this is at the point where the uh, witch of the waste comes in as a customer into the hat shop, and she's with this uh, this man. Whose name's Gaston, and he seems to be like some sort of assistant, and she comes in and she's this really like kind of Im- Im- impressive, beautiful lady and she she she's like asking after like hats and Sophie tries to find like the best one they have for her, but of course, it's not even close to good enough. She says, "Well why did you even come here?" And the witch says that she'd heard of the hatter and I, I don't know. So she was. She had heard of her and was somehow threatened by her being there. Like, I was yeah. unsure as to what. Can you can you clarify?
1: She didn't want any competition, but also. So did you? Because the hats read your, were so good, right? The or hats something? were like yeah, they were like at least different and like new
0: or something. And they were just like like some sort of competition in the area. So it seems kind was of like maybe there was a mystery though, like like why she was really there was maybe not being said. Yeah, that's
1: what I was gonna get at. Do you? What do you think about? So did Sophie, because it seemed like she was kind of frustrated with her situation. Did Do you think that she snapped on the witch? Or do you think that the witch kind of just out of like jealousy of her success or like the, the hats? Like, what did you think happened here? Why did the witch do what she did next?
0: Oh, yeah, the curse. I felt like she was always, she was there to curse her. She was going to do that I, regardless. I thought so. But like I said, I, I was a little unsure as to the like the motives here, so... I'm certainly could be wrong. I feel like I read in the I mean in the
1: film there's a motive and or or less of a motive I guess but and it's kind of more mysterious and then in this I almost felt like it was because she she kind of got aggravated with her and she's like why did you even come here then like
0: oh because she, like, she gave her attitude.
1: Yeah if you're looking for such fancy
0: hats why did you even come to this shop we're just a small shop. So yeah so she during their little like uh, argument they have at some point Sophie realizes she's kind of croaking in her response. And a spell has been cast on her like without her even knowing it. And the, the spell makes her old. Transforms, transforms her into an old crone. Um, and uh, we do get her saying that it's for meddling in her matters. Like her witches matters. So I'm not really sure what that means. Or how Sophie did that, I should say. But that's the reason we're given. And then the Witch of the Ways kind of just leaves her. And leaves her as an old woman and just <laughs> heads out of the shop. So Sophie... Takes this like a champ. She is like, she just—it doesn't bother her. It doesn't seem to bother her at all. She's like, okay, I'm old now. I always felt like I was old at heart, so it makes sense.
1: I feel like it had something to do with her becoming old. Like as an old, as an older person, they're implying that like you don't care about stuff as much. So like since she was old, yeah. she's just like, well, I don't. Uh, I'm old, so what
0: are you gonna do about it? There's some implication that yeah, the fact that she is old like actually affects her mood. She has more of the mood of an older lady, but. We do also get, like, something in the, you know, the following day where she says, she says that she was in shock, and that's maybe why she wasn't as, like, upset about it, but this first day, she just says, okay, well, I don't need to stay here anymore if I'm an old lady, so I'm just gonna leave, and she just, like, sets off to, like, find her fortune and takes off down the road. Her back starts aching as she's walking, and she finds this old scarecrow, sets it upright. Has this like thought of like oh uh, you know what if you could talk to me and be my companion or whatever, and then um, then she just leaves it, and she lit la- she like finds a dog. There's this whole thing with her and this dog that she frees, and then uh, well, yeah she she like I think she like stands oh, it was, the scarecrow yeah.
1: up. She like stands him up better. So, so and she's like maybe if somebody sees you on on their way they'll they'll put you where you need to be, or something. And she kind of helped the dog was like tied
0: up. Yeah, the dog was like. The dog was trapped by the scarecrow's stick. It all kind of happens at the same time, yeah. And um, in, in, I think in the... No, it's a walking stick. stick. Yeah, it's yeah. a walking stick. Multiple sticks early on. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of talk about sticks, but she eventually gets a walking stick and she is like fully old lady mode now. She's like being like... She's like being, you know, chatty with everybody. She encounters a shepherd and like has a a conversation with him where she's... I don't know, just she's being funny. Like, I don't know. I really like, I really like her as an old lady. Like she's instantly a character that I'm more interested in at this point. I like
1: her. I, I think she like in the book, it seems like she, I guess it's just up to interpretation because in the film, I feel like she's more of a young woman trapped in an older body. But at the same time, not, I don't know. It just seems like in this, she like became an old woman. And then in the film, so for the most part, I kind of always like was like, oh, it's a young woman in an older body.
0: And in this, she was, like, actually an old woman. Yeah, well, here she says, like, she doesn't feel scared being out at night. She doesn't think anyone's going to bother her. She doesn't even think that wolves would eat her because she's too dry and tough. She just doesn't care anymore. After after being so timid and, like, you know, as a, as a, as her younger self, she just doesn't care at this point. And uh, she sees Wizard Howl's castle coming towards her, and so she just yells at it to stop. And then and it does. <laughs> and that's the end of Chapter 2. There's something about, like,
1: some sort of theme of with age comes wisdom or confidence or something in here where it's like because she was so timid before I guess the lesson here would be kind of be confident have confidence in yourself and kind of be who you are and that as you age you'll kind of get more of that
0: yeah I agree with that I think I I definitely see that as a theme of it's almost you know that's why it's this is this this makes for good fantasy material because you're getting someone who has kind of the um, scrappiness of like an old tough woman who's seen a lot and and has been around the block and just doesn't care what people think of her anymore and isn't tied down by trying to be proper or be beautiful and all that stuff, right? Like there's a freedom almost in that. And at the same time, she has all this youthful, you know, vibrancy and, and you know, verb for life that. Uh, maybe, maybe a you know a real old woman wouldn't have. So it makes her a really good fantasy character because it's the it's a really interesting blend of those two things. And then you also, of course, get the idea of a beautiful young woman who is now in this old body, and and so what that does to her self image and everything, right? So chapter three, Sophie finds her way into the castle by having to do all kinds of anti-clockwise walking and invisible walls and all this stuff. But it's kind of a maze to get in, but she does eventually get inside the castle. And when she gets inside, she comes into this like workshop lounge area (laughs) and she finds a young man. Uh, She sees all these like wizardly things everywhere and a small fire in the hearth. And uh she just sits down at the at the hearth on the on the uh, the chair because she's exhausted at this point and uh, just decides she's gonna basically have a nap and the boy uh whose name's Michael we found says he's Hal's apprentice and that the wizard Hal isn't home right now, and he's very like kind of put off by her just showing up, but she just doesn't care like she just doesn't care about anything <laughs> and she's like, i'm gonna have i'm gonna take a nap, you wake me up when Hal comes home, and then she falls asleep in front of the fire as she's like half asleep she's kind of studying michael and kind of seeing what's what's up with him and he i wasn't really quite sure of his age but later i think it's revealed he's 15 um so he's 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 a he's a teen (laughs) and um he's there and um she kind of is curious about him but she's kind of pretending to be fully asleep and then she ends up falling fully asleep and while she's asleep this is the first time that the pov shifts um, which I don't know if you if you noticed this when it happened, but as a writer, I'm like, oh, interesting. Because she falls asleep, and if we're really close to her POV, we shouldn't know anything that happens when she falls asleep. But instead of that happening, she falls asleep, and we know that Michael walks over and starts talking to the fireplace, or to the fire in the fireplace, um, which talks back to him. While he's doing that, Sophie's asleep, and then she wakes herself up snoring. She notices that the fire has gotten really low, and she throws this log on, and the f- the f- the flames go blue and green and light up and she thinks, oh, there must be salt in the wood. Um and as she's staring into the flames, she imagines a face. And uh sure enough, the fire speaks to her, and we meet Calcifer, the fire demon. Who is my favorite character <laughs> <laughs> He's amazing? I mean he's I up, up there Calcifer. for sure.
1: I like Howl a lot, and I like Sophie, but I think Calcifer is just like the part of the story. He's got I mean, he's the comedic relief while also being like really cool and he just says whatever he wants he's like a little fire demon and yeah. i like the, the whole curse thing
0: yeah which was kind of a mystery and i don't remember all the details of so don't don't uh, don't spoil it for me um but yeah so she enters into an agreement with him that he's gonna like let her stay if she can help him get free of this contract or something he has with hal where he has to be the like engine that runs this this castle and he's, but in part of this agreement, makes, keeps him stuck in this hearth. Yeah. And so he, he doesn't like it and he wants her to help him find a way out. In exchange, he's going to let, not only let her stay, but also uh, lift her curse. Part of this, uh, the demon says she's going to have to stay around because he can't, he also, part of his thing is he can't say what the curse is that binds him to Hal. Like he can't talk about it. I think it's and the similarly, same for her. she can't she can't, yeah, she can't mention the curse that's on her, so that's an interesting part of the magic is, like, you can't talk about the fact that the spell's been cast on you, um, which is an effective thing to put on a curse, I guess. And, yeah, so the reality that she's going to die about 60 years sooner than she was going to die seems to be kind of the thing that turns her, like, turns her around to not liking this curse. <laughs> like, she's okay being an old in an old woman's body, but she doesn't want to die soon, which is essentially what um, is going to happen to her. Um, I did want to talk about this is a good place, I think, to stop and just mention that the magic in this world is just really cool. Like, it's it's a really well thought thought through. It has, like, interesting rules to it, while at the same time feeling like it has no rules. I just, the idea of a fire demon being the energy that, like, powers this moving castle, I don't know. I was really taken with how how uh, imaginative it is and, and impressed with it, really. Yeah, I agree. Well, I'll talk more about
1: the magic when we get to another magical thing that's hap- that happens in another chapter.
0: Okay. All right. So tra- chapter four happens, uh, comes around with Sophie waking up and thinking she's dreamed the demon, the fire demon. She doesn't even think that it happened. She looks out the window and sees a town by the sea. Uh, she finds the room and the work area. It's now lit up, and she can see that everything's really dirty and dusty um she goes into a bathroom finds it disgusting and dirty Uh, she looks up into a loft and basically everything's dirty um she goes out to a backyard um we see higgledy-piggledy heaps of wire this is another example i think of the way she writes that i think is really interesting like it's it just gives like a character to that heap of metal or whatever that she's seeing you know and uh, she finds that really bizarre, like it doesn't really fit with the rest of the castle. And then uh, there's another door that leads to a broom closet that, you know, pointedly has a pair of cloaks in it, which in any fantasy story with magic, I'm like, oh, what kind of magic cloaks are in this broom closet? <laughs> um, and then she adds some logs to the fire and finds out that the, the fire demon is real. And he kind of wakes up and Calcifer reminds her of the deal that they made.
1: So something I wanted to mention here was she came through a doorway, and when she looks out the window, she's looking at a window and a doorway at the same wall and she's seeing like two different locations, I think in that way so this is yeah, our first right. instance of if there being like some sort of portals or something leading to different towns inside of the
0: castle. I should say that I'm not a hundred percent clear on how the portal doors work. um I know there is one door that has like a knob that seems to open to different places, but then there is also like seems to be a door that consistently leads to like a location in a town where this house really is. But then also a door that just leads to the outside of wherever the moving castle is.
1: Yeah, it might be the same. I think the door, the the door with the knob that you twist to a different color, I think that's the same as leading to it. Like, I think there's... Three doorways. There's four slots on the on the knob that you turn, mm-hmm. and I think three of those four lead consistently to locations like you were saying, but maybe not. Maybe yeah. I'm maybe I'm wrong. Um, no, I
0: think you're right. That sounds right.
1: And th- and then there's also the exit to the to wherever the castle currently is, and then there's the fourth dial that's black. That if yeah. you turn to, we find out later there's some mysteriousness going on with that.
0: Yeah so uh at this point michael wakes up comes down her food um she says that she can cook which uh, michael tells her only only hal has been able to do um so she decides to uh compel calcifer to let her cook on him which is something that hal is very impressed with because he he shows up right basically right then and for the first time and he's super impressed with her ability to get Calcifer to obey her and and, co- and let her cook, and of course this is she she recognizes him from the the Mayday fair, right?
1: She yeah she recognizes him and he recogni- he he like vaguely remembers her but doesn't know where she he looks knows familiar. Her from. Yeah, and right. also the uh, cooking on Calcifer is a big deal because even the apprentice Michael can't get Calcifer to like allow
0: him to do that. Yeah, so he's really impressed with her ability to, to like cow this fire demon um Who later at one point says that he's millions of years old. I don't know if you got, got that, <laughs> but I was like, "Oh, that's a lot." Okay, interesting.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's obviously because the, he wants the curse to be broken. That's why she's like
0: able to manipulate him. But I mean, we also get like an implication that that he is very powerful. Right from from that to me, that that says that to me, he's able to you know make this whole moving castle run. And then he's also millions of years old and a fire demon. Yeah. I don't know. He seems like he's, even though he's kind of small and kind of cute in this moment, it kind of tells me that there is, theres he's got a lot of power too. Well,
1: what's funny is that I, I rem- I mean, I think you as well, we think of the Miyazaki Calcifer, the little tiny cute guy. But in this, yeah. he's, and he's like little small orange and red. Sometimes he turns blue. But in this, Calcifer is like a full-blown demon. He has like purple teeth and blue hair and yeah. and like he looks like more demonic.
0: Yeah, I agree. He looks a little more intense, but he's still like the way he talks is not is still kind of comical, although you're right. It's not as much as it is in the movie. But he also he's small, I think is what it is. Like he's in like, you know, he, they put the frying pan on his head and he's like he starts like mumbling when it's on his head and stuff. So yeah. there's some like funny kind of cute stuff that happens with him still even in the book.
1: I think he also like grows to to really like Sophie. So that's another part of it. Like I was saying, like she she's able to manipulate him because of the contract.
0: But at the same time, I feel like eventually he grows to like her. Well, this is another example of how different she is now. Like she's bullying this fire demon to like do her bidding. And like she's not taking any guff from Michael. And when Hal comes in, she's like, you know, has no problem to kind of talking to him and standing up to him and acting like she belongs there. And this is all like her her becoming this old lady really just gave her all this backbone, which is funny because now her back hurts all the time. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it really transformed her character in a a really fascinating way. Agreed. She offers how to, she says, you know, take me on for a month as a trial and and I'll be your cleaning lady. And he says, okay, or he doesn't say okay, but he just basically agrees to it. They She mentioned something about the castle, and they all laugh because come to find out it's not really a castle. It's more like a house that's got like a illusion of being a castle cast upon it. it's It's really interesting like how this magic all works. So while they're talking, someone knocks at the door and Hal opens it uh, with the red blob downward, and there's a man there who's asking uh, who's got payment for some boots that the Hal made for him. And this is our first time we learn that essentially Hal makes his money by making spells and maybe making magic items and selling them to people in different townships in the area. And this is how he like makes his fortune, yeah, and affords his fancy clothes that he wears. <laughs> and we also learn that Michael is kind of concerned about Hal having all this money that this man gives her, gives him. Um, So this is also our first, you know, that we learn a little bit about Hal, that he seems to be very confident. He's very good looking, kind of dashing young man. But he also seems to be extremely vain. I'm really kind of obsessed with his own looks and making, you know, he's kind of like almost like a, I don't know, somebody out of the 80s or something. When I think about it, like this, like, you know, like lead singer of a band who's like just really obsessed with having his hair just right and making all the ladies love him, you know?
1: Yeah, he's like every, he's this powerful wizard, and at the same time, he, ha- every like vice that one can mm-hmm. have, he has. He, like, yeah. he's like a womanizer, he will spend all of his money, he'll, he, he just, it, like, that's the character that he is.
0: All right, so chapter five, Sophie uh, starts cleaning the rooms. She, it's really thorough and methodical, and we get a lot of talk about her going around and cleaning cobwebs, and And uh, Hal comes out and says, you can clean the cobwebs, but don't disturb the spiders because they eat the flies. And, you know, so it's kind of a defense of the spiders. She's forbid to kill any of them. And this kind of becomes a theme of like her pushing against the status quo that has that has come up in this place. And then him kind of giving her boundaries about what she can and can't do. Michael and Calcifer are really not happy with the cleaning. Um, both complain about it, and she's, like, making stuff rain down on their heads and stuff, which annoys them. Hal eventually comes home, and he's complaining about some woman, which we don't know the details of. But um, the whole time, Sophie keeps thinking she's going to, like, find, a, like, a, a box that's full of hearts that have been eaten or, like, souls in a container. And so she keeps thinking that these rumors are true and that she's going to stumble upon, you know, the, the proof of them. So she she spends the next few days looking for these things and also looking for clues about maybe the contract with Calcifer and not really finding anything. She cleans everything. She finds a spot like that in Michael's room. He has this little box. She comes in right as he's like looking at it and it appears to be some like memento from a from a woman he knows. So she's like, oh, he has a, you know, a sweetie or something. And then she starts painting, and then this is the first time that Hal even notices, apparently, he comes in and goes, Oh, it looks brighter in here. And like this first time he's like remarked upon the fact that she's been cleaning everything. Um, and then she tries to go up into his room and he just appears out of nowhere after she thought he wasn't there, and he's like in the door frame, and he's like, uh-uh, not coming in here. I like it the way it is. It basically forbids her from coming in, where she and she thinks, oh, this is where he's hiding the, you know, all the whole all the hearts or whatever. But yeah, he forbids her to go in, and so she doesn't, she does not go in, and she's starting to feel very, like, useless in this moment, because she's basically cleaned everything she can, and she doesn't, he doesn't need her to, like, repair anything, so she kind of doesn't know what her place is, and she keeps thinking, like, well, he's gonna, he's gonna make me leave.
1: Up to this point, she had thought that Hal was kind of a faker, and calcifer, and, and Michael were the ones who were doing all the magic, and then once he starts appearing all over the place and kind of displaying magic, she's like, "Oh, I was wrong. He's pretty powerful."
0: Yeah, she, he does a few things that like impress her, and she goes, "Oh, okay, this is this, this wizard is legit." Yeah, and I mean, I you do feel, kind of feel like she's running out of things to do to be useful here, so you you kind of understand why she's maybe a little bit concerned about it, right?
1: Yeah, and at the same time, she's still trying to find out how she can free Calcifer, so she's got to find excuses for her to stay around and she's and she feels like as soon as all the stuff that she has to complete is completed then she's going to get kicked out and it's funny because how uh Michael starts talking about how you kind of just show up at Hal's place and hang out and then eventually he just gets used to you being
0: there and then you live there. <laughs> yeah, and that seems to be happening for for them here. All right, so for chapter 6, Hal leaves for a few days, um then comes back. She mentions that he's kind of a slitherer outer which is an interesting phrase, um, for the fact that he doesn't like being pinned down by things. He doesn't like for people to compel him to do things. And basically he's stubborn, which is a, a something going forward that continues to be true. And uh, so she wants ha- she watches how craft a spell, which I think is a really kind of interesting part where we see that that's something he can do. And he's doing it with Michael watching um, to try and teach him kind of how to do it and uh while that's happening a messenger knocks on the door and we learn that the king wants uh how to help get their wagons out of out of like the sub the marshlands and how agrees to do it um and sophie this whole time is kind of listening and thinking like oh maybe i could pick up like some magical knowledge which i'm like yes this is what i would do for sure you know what <laughs> i mean if there's a lesson going on about magic i'm like um ears perked up i'm listening
1: yeah for sure me too and like it's funny because the magic- like you were saying before, the magic in this in this novel is really interesting because seemingly you can craft a spell and or or use magical powders and and artifacts i guess and and kind of give them over to non magical folk and they can use those spells later at a later date,
0: yeah there's these like scrolls that seem to have these like i, I later on it becomes more apparent but at this point, I didn't quite understand it, but it seems like they're kind of instructions that are riddles they're like riddles for like how they work and you have to you have to figure out what what the spell is asking for as far as components and like almost answer the riddle um in order to like create the spell which i don't know it's pretty pretty cool kind of magical magical uh system here so how uh sends michael to the palace with the new spell that he made and instructions for how to tell them how it works And then Hal leaves with his guitar, and Calcifer says that he gave her a hint about the contract already, but she says, you know, she missed it, I guess. And this is when Sophie gets curious and decides she's going to see what's through that door. So she goes up, turns the knob to black, and opens the door and sees nothing, and when I say nothing, I mean nothing like there's it's not white, it's not gray, it's not black, there's no color, which immediately is like, all right, now now i'm now I've got like a brain like <laughs> brain aneurysm because <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out what no color looks like. it's yeah. not black, white, or gray. Have fun trying to picture that. <laughs> I did the same thing. I was like, all right, come on, you can figure
1: it out." And I was like in my mind trying to imagine it,
0: yeah, and she's she like pokes it. And then, of course, because that's how she is. Yeah. And then, like, there's like, oh, I guess not. And then she just closes. Well, yeah, out. and even
1: Calcifer doesn't doesn't recognize what it is.
0: Yeah, he's, like, peeking out of the hearth. Like, what do you see? You know, he's, like, curious about it. We don't know. We, I mean, in this moment, it's not told to us. But later, we find out that maybe, uh, like, a, a spell came through when she had the door open, which is just mysterious. Um, We'll get to that. Um, at that point michael returns and he's he seems kind of upset that hal's out with women and they this is when he he starts to talk about hal and he says hal keeps falling in love with all these different women and sophie is upset saying you know because she keeps thinking that he's eating their hearts or whatever and he's like how can you be okay with this and and they laugh and come to find out that michael has been spreading these rumors um, in these different towns, and that's how she heard these rumors. And it's a way to like quote blacken his name. Um, and I think it's Michael trying to like protect the women of these towns. Maybe I don't know. It's kind of it's kind of messed up when you think about it. Yeah. Um, but essentially, like he knows that Hal falls in love with falls in love with women, and then the women, as long as the women don't love him back, he's obsessed. But as soon as the women decide they love him back, he loses interest. Which I don't know. That does not make me like Hal very much. He kind of seems like a jerk. Yeah. But it's kind of I guess charming in a way. I don't know.
1: Uh, Yeah. I. I mean, it's like this kind of interesting character trait, I guess, that he has. That he like kind of yeah. It's a flaw, I guess. Character flaw. Yeah. That's that's true. He that he kind of goes around and and makes these women. It's just and what does that say about his character? That he he. Must hate himself, right? It's like he loves himself so much yeah. and he's so vain, but he must hate himself because as soon as they love him back, he's like not interested. And
0: yeah, it's like if if someone can love him, then that somehow lessens them in his eyes. Because yeah, like you said, maybe he's got like some real like um, self-loathing loathing or something. He also seems to enjoy the process of like courting these ladies, like women, and making them fall in love. So he seems to be really. I don't know. He's, he's a womanizer, you know, like fit this is this is like a fancy way of talking about people who really do this sort of thing. Right. Right. But this is all news to, to Sophie, who thought this was all real. And she learns that this is all instead rumors that was spread by Michael and she feels kind of silly. And then Hal comes home and he um, he goes into the bathroom and he's like, oh, yeah, I hope you didn't move any of the spells in here. And she's like, no, I didn't. Of course not. Lying. Which is not the first time we... Like, and Sophie actually lies a lot in this book. Yeah. Um, which I think is pretty funny. I don't know. She's... It's not, like, necessarily... It's, like, it's a lot of, like, white lies or, like, lies that don't seem very bad um, in the moment. But she does do... She lies a lot, I would say.
1: Mm-hmm. Some of them have consequences um, as well, like this.
0: Yeah. So he comes out later and he's, like, flipping out and come to find out his hair is tinged red. And just very very slight red and she's like oh i think it looks good but he has this like epic meltdown where he starts howling and like like spirits get summoned or something it's very confusing and they and like her and michael have to flee that the castle and they go to town and like the whole town is like getting deafened by these like screams and this also is like a sign for how powerful he is right like it shows us how powerful a wizard he is and so they all flee to like the ocean side and, like, waited out until he stopped screaming. And then he finally stopped screaming. They return to the castle, and they find him covered in this green goo. He's had this big, like, tantrum. And she pushes him in the bathroom, and they wash him off. They sit down afterwards, and she says, oh, what's this all about? And he says, well, I'm upset about, uh, you know, this girl named Sophie Hatter. And that's where this chapter ends, kind of the cliffhanger that we now know that, Sophie, that her sister is the one that Hal is currently infatuated with.
1: Yeah, which we get to see played out interestingly because we know from before the sisters kind of swapped places, Letty and, and Martha.
0: Yeah, so we don't, we asked, yeah, I didn't even think about that. But yeah, in, in that moment, I guess we don't know because um she it could be Martha, it could be Letty because we know that Martha looks like Letty right now. Right, there's so. like some spells going on. And is basically acting like she is letting. All right. Well, I think this is a good time before we go any further um, to take a moment to talk about Audible. Uh, we have an Audible affiliate link, which is audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. You go there and you're going to get a free credit and a free 30 days. Um, and you can download any audiobook from their giant list of audiobooks they have.
1: Yeah. Uh, actually, I think you as. Is- you did this as well. I listened to the audiobook of Howl's Moving Castle for this for this project that we're doing here and it's a it's a really good experience. I mean, it's the first time I've listened to an audiobook from Audible that had a female narrator uh, which is a lot of oh, fun. Really? Yeah, and and she does a great job. And it's just a it's and it's fun and interesting to hear somebody kind of act out the the scenarios that are going on with different voices and cuz I don't know about yeah. you, but I don't necessarily use different voices in my own head when I'm reading.
0: Mm. No, I mean, it is kind of fun. And and, um, I don't know if she is a British lady, but she seems like she is because she's got this really good like British accent, which really works for this kind of story. And it definitely adds something to the experience. I like it because I can take notes. And essentially, that's just a sign like you can multitask while you listen to a book, which I think is a really cool thing with Audible. I also wanted to mention um, for my recommendation this week. Neil Gaiman, uh, who was friends with uh, Diana Wynne Jones, he has a book called *The Ocean at the End of the Lane*, which, if you like this book, I think you should check that out because it's a really interesting look at like children in England, and there's like secret magic and and the kind of like a, the, like a fairy world. And I don't know, it's just really cool. And his writing is really beautiful and lyrical. And it, they, these two writers remind me of each other. Cool
1: yeah i'm gonna have to check that out because i haven't read that and i I do like neil gaiman so looking forward to that
0: yeah and if you want to do that make sure you go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film that way you can get get it for free and you can help us out all right uh let's get into chapter seven uh sophie is worried about martha and she basically doesn't want her sister to get hurt by hal who's this womanizer right and today, Hal uh, is like, in a much better mood, and he's decided he likes the hair now. He thinks it looks good with the new suit that she's made, and he leaves for the palace. He he occasionally keeps going to the palace, and we know there's something going on there that we're not getting all the details of. Did you
1: did you draw anything from that yet? Because I, I know how, kind of, knowing how the film plays out, there might be something yeah, see, there. I don't,
0: that's some of the stuff I don't remember. I don't remember exactly what goes on with the palace. Okay. So I'll be interested to see that in the second half. Everybody leaves, Michael heads out, Hal leaves, and uh, Calcifer says, you know, I'll open the door for you when you uh, you come back, and she seems like she's kind of ready to, she's not even sure she wants to come back at this point, because she's upset with Hal um, for how he's treating women, and she just doesn't know if she wants to be here anymore. And when she goes to leave, um, there's a scarecrow at the door, which totally scares her, and basically she commands Calcifer to get the castle and run away from the Scarecrow. And so they do that, and Calcifer expends all of his energy until he's super tired and and essentially falls asleep. And they finally get all the way away from the Scarecrow so they can't see it anymore. And that's when Hal and Michael return. And uh, Michael first, and he says that Letty loves me, and he's all happy about that, right? And uh, this is another moment of, like, Holy crap! So apparently Michael is also um, involved with Letty, and uh, we also know that uh, Letty is said something about another man. So this it's it's creating this almost like weird love triangle. We think perhaps um, I don't know. What did you what did you think of all this? Did it seem like they were, like did it seem almost too convenient that they're all <laughs> apparently they're all getting involved with a woman named Letty?
1: Yeah. This um well this doesn't take place in the film, and it's interesting because. Like you say, to have The Apprentice in love, he's like truly in love with a Letty. And then he's having to hear his, his master go off and talk to a Letty as well. Same same full name too. Uh, yeah. Letty Hatter. Letty so Hatter, yeah. He's he's bummed out at first and then he goes to visit his, Martha, go, or sorry, Michael goes to visit his Letty. Come to find out, he's like, my Letty's never met, Hal. So then we're like, okay, so... Somebody's using a false name or somebody's or the spell hasn't worn off with the there's there's potentially two Lettys.
0: Yeah. And we kind of assume that, yeah, maybe that's what happened. He's he's talking to the real Letty, but like, how does he know that she's the real one? We don't know. So that's a mystery for for Sophie to try and figure out. Hal returns. We hear some talk about the um, the king wanting to pin him down and like name him royal magician and and force him to help with with the witch in the waste and all this stuff. But he doesn't want to do that. Hal's really against this idea, and this goes back to his like stubborn streak of not wanting to be pinned down. And this is the first time where he says, "You know what? I would love you know." He wants Sophie to go to the king and like blacken his name to the king which is i guess a way like him saying go and talk him bad about him so that the king won't want to work with him anymore
1: yeah but it's interesting because at the same time i don't know if it's here or a little bit later but he 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 kind of wants her to toe the line of like he wants a little bit of work from the king so he can make money but he doesn't want to be like royally appointed so he ha- he's like obligated to do every little
0: thing that the king wants yeah which to me makes it seem like he's asking the impossible from Sophie here um but sophie doesn't um i don't think she says no or yes at this point it's just something he kind of talks about and she doesn't say anything um so chapter eight Hal is happy to see that calcifer is okay when he the next day because he's was like so like drained from from what he did for for um moving the castle away from the scarecrow
1: and something and, I wanted uh, to mention about the scarecrow before yeah. we before we lose that is, like, the scarecrow is, like, a delightfully fun character in, in the film, but for some reason in in the novel so far, he's, like, a nightmare creature who keeps, like, popping up and attacking them and stuff.
0: Yeah, and and Sophie's, like, terrified of him, right? right. Like, she keeps, like, having, like, heart palpitations every time she sees him. Yeah, so it's a little different than the film. Yeah. So, speaking of, uh, Hal opens the door, basically, to leave, and the scarecrow is, like, right there, like you know like play scary musics <laughs> and um how basically uh has to like tussle with the thing he forces it outside and they go down and he's like you gotta leave and the the scarecrow shakes its head no and then so he blasts it away with like some sort of spell that sends it into like like almost a cartoony like speck in the sky and then it like disappears
1: yeah basically the scarecrow blasts off again like team rocket so
0: <laughs> into the clouds Bing. Yes, just like that. Um, So after that, Hal apologizes for doubting her. Um, Sophie's having, like, heart issues because she was so scared. And Calcifer and Hal have this moment, like, mysterious moment where they kind of look at each other and then do something, maybe a spell, I don't know. And then Sophie starts feeling better. And then um, Hal wants her to rest. So next, uh, Sophie wants to go talk to letty essentially so she's gonna try she tries to sneak out michael catches her they just agree to go together they're going to use something called the seven league boots and we have kind of a fun magic moment where they're you know trying to like take one step because it's going to make them go a certain distance but they keep she keeps messing up and like stumbling and every time she stumbles she like transports another 10 leagues or whatever and so they, anyway, they, they, they have this thing where they pop all around, zipping all around, but finally they end up where they're supposed to go.
1: I love that scene too. Cause it was, that's like, that's a really fun scene We she's zipping all over the place and she can't, she can't like plant her foot because she's so old. And, and so she keeps like accidentally stumbling and shooting another like 10 miles or whatever it is. And, I, it and was she just keeps awesome. like,
0: la- like landing in cow pats, right? Yeah. Cow pats. That's another funny <laughs> British thing. Cow pats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um Yeah, there's another mo- uh, so so. Then they go to Fairfax's uh farm or whatever, or house or whatever, to 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 for Sophie to meet with Letty. And when they get there, the dog comes running out and starts running around. And this is another moment of of prose that just caught caught my eye because she says there was a minute or so of helter skelter chase in which the dog ran hither and thither in a distressed way. And those like little paired words are so musical to me definitely that it kind of gives you this like farcical feeling for what this chase is like right right um and during this chase they come upon hal and letty in a grove let uh sophie peeks out and sees them and basically sees that letty doesn't look like a martha at all she just looks like letty now so she was supposed to be imitating martha but isn't this is how this is how the it can both of them can be let uh letty hatter right because the real Letty is not doing the assumed assumed name thing. Sophie has a conversation with Mrs. Fairfax, where she says, "Did you know that her suitor is Wizard Hal?" And Fairfax, and Fairfax is like, "Yeah, I knew that. No big deal. I've known him from before. He worked. He was like a tutor of my mentor back in the day, or something." And basically, she thinks that it's like a good get, and that Letty should be happy to be being um, pursued by him because she could learn magic from him. Which is another like moment where I thought it was a little bit old fashioned and kind of it's I don't want to call it like squicky, but it's a little bit squicky because the implication being that Letty should be okay with like trading her like affections for knowledge from Hal, which I'm not real comfortable with the way that's outlined as being like a positive thing yeah um I don't know It's probably just a fa- you know this was written in the eighties um it's
1: yeah it's also supposed to take place in a different even even you know earlier than the
0: eighties, so it's like that's true it's like a, um it's it's just i would have expected maybe Sophie or somebody to maybe like call it out as being a little bit weird, yeah instead it's kind of taken to be like oh yeah I mean, of course right, yeah well, miss
1: Fairfax is also like a bit eccentrically weird and like Maybe she's yeah. she's not the the opinion to to trust. maybe she just feels that way, and I don't know. It definitely seems a little
0: problematic yeah, but it I, I, this, this whole book does seem to be or at least the part we've read. it seems to be like starting from a place of really conservative values and really traditional values, and then slowly kind of breaking them a little bit, right, but not just like blowing them up, detonating them, but like finding ways to subvert them in like in subtle ways, right, which I like. Yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, so they head back. Um, someone's banging at the door, come to find out it's a sea captain, and he's demanding a spell. Get into chapter nine. Michael gives it to him, and this is where uh, Michael gives his backstory, and he tells uh, Sophie how she he came to stay with Hal, that he was an orphan, and then Hal took him in, basically, and he tried to make himself useful, and it's actually kind of similar to how to how Sophie ended up there, right? Like, it's a similar kind of thing where seems like Hal is okay with taking on these like runaways or strays or whatever <laughs> as people <laughs> and like kind of they become his friends and he seems to like the attention maybe. And then they start working together on this on this spell that um, was a spell of power that Hal supposedly left for Michael, but we learn later is not actually the correct spell. So they're working on this spell and this is another thing where it's like there's like this verse written of like rhyming words and it seems to be kind of a riddle and when they're and um Sophie is helping Michael because he's perplexed by it right and she comes up with the idea that they need to catch a shooting star and this is a moment of like kind of farcical magic to me too because they go out and they ch- they literally chase a falling star and Michael is able to almost catch it and then the star turns around and starts talking to him and it's like really afraid of him and it's really like emo and it's just like I want to die Leave me alone. Yeah. And he's and then, like, he can't catch it, and it just falls into a puddle and dies. <laughs> yeah, they talk about how sad
1: it is. See, like, Sophie says it's, like, really sad because it, like, drowned in the puddle and stuff. And yeah, but that's what it wanted,
0: too. Like, yeah. apparently the shooting stars are suicidal or something. <laughs> I don't know. It's pretty funny in, like, a dark way, but I, I don't know. I liked it. <laughs> yeah. But it's also, like, this weird, Mike, it shows you that this isn't our world, right? Like, this is a world where shooting stars the also it also like unhinges from the firmament and then falls out of the sky it's like so it's different it's not like a meteorite, you know, yeah it's also it's cool because they use those boots
1: again right the the
0: yeah, that's right to chase it they'd use the po- the boots to chase seven, it seven league boots seven
1: league boots they need to they need to travel fast enough to catch a shooting star, so they try to step into
0: it he tries to step into it and grab it, yeah, which i mean that's i mean just those words put together right that's interesting right there. Seven-league boots, because you need to travel fast enough to catch a shooting star. You know, that's that's a good that's a good bit of fantasy. Chapter 10, our final chapter. Uh, Hal returns, and he mentions that he saw her poking her nose around the house. And basically that he saw her at uh, Mrs. Fairfax and knows that she's been snooping. And uh, while this is happening, Hal and Michael both leave again, both to go to their respective leddies. And a knock comes to the door, and Sophie opens it up, and there's a man... Who wants to buy a spell to stick shoes onto his horse. And so she sells the spell to him. And this is the first time where we really see her doing this on her own. And she spends the rest of the day like selling spells to people. Wait, well,
1: Calcifer is kind of giving her guidance too, because like she wouldn't yeah, know on her own. She like walks over to Calcifer, kinda of, like like she doesn't let the customers know, but she asks Calcifer for advice and he like says, like, go
0: grab this, go do that. That's true. Um, and then, um, there's a, a a boy shows up who wants to win a duel and she doesn't want, she doesn't feel comfortable like giving him like a spell that's going to actually help him win the duel. So she has this funny idea and she sells him like a packet of cayenne pepper, which she does like fakes magic moves over and like words. And she says this, this magic dust will make you have a fair chance at winning the fight just as much as your opponent. And he's like super happy with this. And it just, I actually think this is a really funny moment in for like how, I don't know, how like a lot of magic is in the real world, like how these spells quote unquote work, you know, it's a lot of this kind of thing. Like if you want to believe in it, then you're going to think it helped you, right? Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's,
1: and it's funny because the powder is like cayenne pepper, right? Or like some sort of like, so like maybe I guess in theory, if he threw it just right, it might get in his opponent's eye.
0: Yeah, but she doesn't say throw it at your opponent. She says just like sprinkle it in the air at the beginning of the fight. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, and it'll make it so that you have it, th- th- literally she says it'll make it so you have just as good a chance of winning as your opponent, which is essentially saying nothing. And he's like a and he's like a
1: <laughs> small guy apparently and she's like wanted to help yeah. him out because he was small, so he's probably going to get his ass kicked because she wouldn't give him
0: magic stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Anyway, uh, so next Hal comes home and he's all upset about the king and that he's like pinning him down and trying to get him to do all this stuff for him. And he says, I really need you to blacken my name to the king. And she's like, you know, resistant at first, but eventually agrees. And Michael's going to go with her. And um, the plan is for her to pretend to be Hal's mother. And then uh, somehow get the king to continue, to, like you said earlier, continue to let him make spells for him, but not to make him face the Witch of, Witch of the Waste. So, yeah, it seems like almost an impossible ask. And then he also says he's going to send her to see his old tutor, Mrs. Pinstemon. Pin, Pinstemon. Pinstemon? Yeah. Um, and that's to get used to the grandness of the palace. This is when Michael tells how, like, he's been having a lot of trouble with this spell. And so Hal studies the spell and starts laughing, and then he says, "This isn't the spell I left you." And this is where we learn that he thinks it came through the door when she opened it. And so this is like a mysterious, like the source of the spell is very mysterious. I yeah, like, where so did this come from? When she opened up the 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 black, uh, the black what was it called?
1: Blob. Black door. The black yeah, blob. Black blob. And she like put her finger in it. Apparently something came through, or somebody put something there.
0: Yeah, it's very mysterious, and he and Hal says he's very glad that Michael didn't catch the shooting star, and he admits that he once caught one himself. He says, "Oh, this writing isn't a spell, but it's a a song or a song, but it's not all there, and so I'm not sure what that all means." But this is when he turns he turns the door to black, and he says, "All right, you you you're gonna follow me anyway, so just come along." And he takes Michael and Sophie out into the nothingness. And as she's leaving, calcifer tells her that she's had her she's had her hint, and somewhere in this conversation there's the hint about their contract, I guess, and that's the end of chapter ten, yeah, so
1: like you say, um calcifer says that she got another hint any idea what the
0: hint is do you do you know what the hint is from the movie? yeah, okay, you do see I don't okay. remember okay, so I'm assuming it's the it's the I'm assuming it's the shooting star thing. that's the thing that stands out to me. the fact that he caught one in the past seems to be like. And then he like doesn't t- elaborate. Seems like a hint to me. Something with the shooting star. You you don't you can, you don't have to confirm that for me. If you don't want to, but that that's that's my guess. What about this spell thing? Does this happen in the movie? Do you remember? I don't remember the spell. Uh, no, I don't think that that's really. So where do, what do you think? Where do you think the spell came from? Is it a person or is it just like an energy? Like what is it? I, I mean, if I had to guess, I feel like it has something to do
1: with like the witch of the waste, kind of maybe like out there is like
0: towards the waist not sure yeah yeah i don't know i'm really interested to see like because they're just all went through this door now onto this nothingness and so i'm going to be really curious to see what actually is on the other side of this door i just wonder how is it possible that calcifer doesn't know what it is at all he can't see anything i don't know it seems like he, he doesn't like he can't see anything outside of the hearth right and i don't know yeah I don't know, it's, yeah, and it maybe it's some, it could be part of his curse that he can't talk about it if he does know anything about it, I don't know. Que- yeah. Questions that I have going forward, for sure. So, yeah, so, general thoughts, what did you think of the book version of this, you know, like, maybe not in necessarily in comparison to the movie, but more just as a reading experience, uh, How how is this story striking you? Coming into this
1: novel, I was like, there's no way that it's going to be anywhere close to as much as I love the film. And I really enjoyed it. Like I, it's different enough to where I don't feel like I've already seen it, even though I have. And it, it's just fun. It's like Miyazaki does something special with it in the way that he, he, a lot of his movies are like kind of environmentally friendly and like anti-war or like, like continuing themes in his films. And her version of this story, well, the original version of the story is more just of straight fantasy that's geared towards children because it's like extreme. Ma- it's like it reminded me a lot of reading like a Harry Potter novel. It just feels like a story that you can enter and experience without it needing to have all these like allegories to things that I guess Miyazaki decided to thread in. So I, that's what I was going to ask you. Did you did you feel like uh diana Wynne jones was was kind of threading in things from her time from like when she wrote the novel in like the 80s did you feel like there were some some sort of like allegories to real life
0: i mean i i kind of mentioned it earlier but it seems to me that she probably is someone who grew up in a very traditional household and this feels to me like kind of a subtle way to erode some of these like like um you're born into a certain life and you're and this is what is like meant for you and it's not it's not like an all out assault on that idea right like it could have been instead it's like okay you know your parents do generally have the best in mind for you but maybe there's another way you know and and we see it through Sophie and you know her she is granted this like insight from this curse
1: i did want to say uh before i mentioned That the I didn't know if I would like the novel quite as much as the film, and I'm enjoying the novel quite a lot so far, like more than I actually expected to, just because the bar is so high for the film.
0: Yeah, and it's it you know it's different for me because it's one of those weird situations of seeing the visual medium first and then coming back to a book Um, because I'll never have an experience where I read this book and wholly imagined it myself. Like the Moving Castle, I think is a good example. I can't imagine it any other way than the way that I saw it in the movie. But if you think about what's actually said in the book, it's not like it's locomotion. is not really described very specifically. So it's kind of left for you to imagine how it actually moves. Right. And, you know, other than it having these big turrets or whatever, like we don't have a clear image of what it looks like. So I don't know. It's, it's, um, it's a, it's a cool experience. It's a unique one, um, but yeah, like you said, this feels very close to Sophie, and it feels very close to her experience, whereas I, if I can remember the movie, it felt a little bit more wider lens, like you can see a little bit more of what's going on in the kingdom and a little bit more of what's going on with Hal early on, Whereas this is very like close to, to Sophie and what she knows, and in fact, it kind of makes me like that moment of like omniscient narrator, it kind of makes me like that moment less. Because other than that moment, we're very close third person and we only know things that she knows, right? Um, So that's an old, that's an old style thing that, you know, a lot of writers pre, I don't know, 1990s did a lot. Um, So it doesn't shock me to see it here, but. So do you feel like it was jarring?
1: Like, did you not like that, that like you're saying you wish that if you, it wasn't there?
0: I mean, honestly, it's handled well um, and she's a good writer and she, she handles it just fine. And it really didn't take me out of it too much. It's I think it's just something that's been ingrained in me as a writer. Because, you know, the common knowledge now is to pick a, pick a method and stick with it. And if you're going to go for close third, like, you've essentially said, okay, these are my rules, and now I'm going to abide by them. And when you do something like that, you're breaking your own rules. So it's, it, I don't know, to, it's, it's a modern thing. It's sensibility that maybe people didn't care about as much in the 80s but nowadays yeah you just don't see people doing that as much um or if they do omniscient they do like you would get a lot more jumping around you get a lot more perspectives all right i guess that's it for this week if you'd like to find us on social media we're on facebook instagram and twitter at ink to film on all three um or you can tweet at us with the ink to film hashtag and uh we'll definitely interact with you i'm, I'm very active on those accounts also,
1: if you wanted to send us feedback of any sort on the book or the movie, because we will be covering the movie coming up, uh, you can send that to inktofilm at gmail.com. And anything you want to send us, comments, concerns, questions, we might read some of it on the air.
0: Yeah, I mean, we'd love to hear from you and let us, let us know, even if you just want to let us know that you're following along, we always love to hear that. Uh, speaking of, if you'd like to help us keep this show going and continue to grow, the best way you can do that is to Subscribe on whatever uh, podcast uh, aggregate you use, and uh, leave us a rating and a review, um, like this five-star review from Spatty on uh, iTunes. I really enjoyed this. I constantly debate whether I want to read things, and it's kind of nice to listen to a discussion on a book I'm on the fence about, or maybe never even heard of, or even hear a discussion on a book I have read and enjoyed it, and to hear a different perspective. We'll definitely be listening to the following episodes. So thanks, Spatty, for that. We love to hear that kind of thing, and and every rating really helps us.
1: Yeah, thank you. We appreciate that. We also wanted to thank Audible for our affiliate link. Um, If you wanted to get that free one credit for a novel and the 30-day free trial, you can go to audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And we also wanted to thank Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. He has a great YouTube channel with all kinds of copyright free stuff you can use like this.
0: Yeah, I mean, he has he has fantastic content on there and I was amazed when we we thought, "Oh, what are we going to use for this episode?" and sure enough, he has this like perfect piece, right? So, he's great. Check him out if you and if you need you need to use his music for your projects. You can. All right, well, that's going to be it for this week. Uh, thanks for joining us. I'm Luke and I'm James. See you later.